Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. So good to be with you again today. The title of our podcast is Follow the Crucified, Not the Americanized Jesus. Follow the Crucified, Not the Americanized Jesus. It's a part three uh, that's coming out of the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book that was just released uh, a week or two ago. Now, we're in part three of this series on which I'm uh, laying out some points uh, around the chapters uh, of the book to supplement your, your reading and hopeful discussion and prayerful thought around the content uh, of the book. Now, we've got a great set of videos and an excellent free discussion guide available for you. I want to encourage you to go to our website at emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship and uh, pick that up. Uh, it'll be a great resource for you and hopefully your team. I want to also invite you to a live stream event that's going to be taking place on Thursday, April 15th, where I'm going to take uh, some of the insights uh, theologically and foundationally from the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book and uh, apply them to present the, actually the four greatest challenges that I believe we're facing today as leaders. Uh, how do we define success in a rapidly changing world? How do we flourish as leaders under unrelenting pressure? How do we lead through extreme political divisiveness? And how do we clearly hear God's voice amidst a multitude of voices? And uh, so I'm actually going to have three uh, practitioners with me who've been living out EHD and their leadership responsibilities with me as well uh, here in, in New York City. And uh, so, again, let me encourage you to, if you're able to come to that on Thursday, April 15th, it's a four-hour workshop. Just go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash live stream. Uh, that's emotionallyhealthy.org slash live stream. And if you are able, if you're listening to this podcast after April 15th, uh, there's a recording of that uh, on emotionallyhealthyspirituality.org slash shop. And you'll be able to get a rough recording of that there. All right, without further ado... Uh, let's dig into uh, the second mark of emotionally healthy discipleship, which is follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus. Now, we started with the first mark last week, which is be before you do. Uh, because if you, don't, if you don't slow down to be yourself and with God, uh, it's not going to even be possible to do the rest. They'll be done flippantly. But at the same time, uh, the marks are all interrelated because the second mark, follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus, if you don't get this second mark, uh, you probably won't do the first mark well. Uh, again, in, in the seven marks provide a uh, kind of a full, coherent, biblical framework to transforming church culture for our mission going into the 21st century. So when I talk about an Americanized uh, Jesus, I'm really talking about a worldly uh, discipleship over and against the Jesus discipleship. And actually, th this came out of... Uh, a three to four year study I was doing myself uh, out of the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, I was I, I do do a manuscript study at the end of my morning, part of my morning prayer actually. I would extend it out, uh, and I would print out in manuscript style. I learned this in InterVarsity as a student and as a staff person many many years ago, uh, without chapter headings, and just begin to mark it up uh, the whole Gospel of Matthew. And so I imagine doing this three to four years, I began to see some you know, significant trends uh, through that gospel around discipleship. And then I simply moved over to John's gospel as well and uh, for another couple of years. And so some major themes started to emerge for me. And I began keeping track of two things in particular. That is the way that Jesus discipled 
the 12. Uh, the way he made disciples of them with very much a, a commitment. He was forming them into mothers and fathers of the faith that would form the leadership for the future church. But then I was also looking at another angle, which was the 12 disciples of their struggle to get it, get so many things that Jesus was saying and why it took such a long time for them to mature. And I was looking specifically at the blockages and why Jesus was hitting over and over long, over and over again these same themes. And what became very apparent to me was that they had been deeply formed by the culture of the first century. By the, and again, they were in a very religious culture. So they, in a sense, had been discipled by first century Judaism uh, and their understanding of God, the Messiah, the way God works and moves. There was an entire environment that they had been drinking from their entire lives. And so in some ways, their discipleship, which I'm going to call worldly discipleship here today, was like cement in them. And so here comes Jesus, and he is breaking up the cement and trying to now break it up and reform them uh, into his discipleship, into what it really means to follow Jesus as the crucified Messiah. And uh, so, so it is with us today that people, we come in cement from our families of origin, from the culture, from the church culture. And then we, we, this Americanized Jesus was just a nice term for me because this Americanized Jesus refers to kind of, I come to God and I want my life to be you know more enjoyable and better. And uh, it's not necessarily just an American concept. It's just, you know, the Americanized Jesus is found in churches actually from Asia to Africa, to Europe, to Latin America, to the Mideast, to Australia, to New Zealand. But we're so immersed in this kind of a feels good, looks good, does so much good Christianity that it's it's just it it's I just like the term Americanized. And I'm gonna contrast it here today with following the crucified Jesus, not the Americanized Jesus, because I recognize that was the struggle for the twelve. Now at the same time I'm doing this study, I'm also uh studying the crucifixion afresh. Uh, and um, reading things from Fleming Rutledge's The Crucifixion, excellent book, to segments of Karl Barth's Dogmatics uh, that are very rich on the crucifixion. And so it's all this mixed together that uh, out of which this chapter emerged. So let, let me begin with a passage which, to me, kind of encapsulates this tension of Americanized versus crucified Jesus, and it comes out of Matthew 16, where after Jesus tells uh, the disciples about the fact that he's going to be crucified, you know, rejected and crucified, but after three days rise again, uh, and he doesn't tell them this till probably at least a year and a half uh, to two years into their discipleship, and then says Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, and said, "Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you." And uh, Jesus turns to him and says to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan! You are a stumbling block to me." You do not have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. And at this point, Peter only understands half the gospel. He's into Jesus, but he's not into a cross-centered Jesus. Uh, he's got a high value of Jesus, you know, as the Messiah, uh, at least his understanding of the Messiah, you know, miracle-working, triumphant. He wants to follow Jesus. He's left everything to follow Christ, but he is not uh, embracing a cross. He's got, he's got some fixed culturally informed ideas of God and the Messiah that does not have any room for this thing called crucifixion. But yet Jesus is trying to, again, break up the cement of his 
worldly or bad discipleship and redo it. And uh, Peter's not curious. He's not asking questions. He's not teachable. He's just defiant. He is angry because he recognizes this totally torpedoes his plans of what leadership was going to look like. And what's interesting, Jesus has some get behind me, Satan. And because discipleship is we're behind Jesus, not in front of Jesus. It's a nice image. Peter's, he's trying to lead Jesus forward. I get that. Um, but Jesus, no, 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 you, he rebukes Peter, you get behind me. And Jesus' reaction is so swift, so intense. And it's shocking. He goes, get behind me, Satan. Because he's recognizing what's coming out of Peter's mouth of avoiding suffering, crucifixion, uh, buying into the world's definition of, we'll talk about in just a moment, popularity, success, and greatness uh, is ultimately demonic. And then Jesus, after this interaction, turns to all the disciples and says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And so basically Jesus' point is that every disciple, discipleship is embracing a way of life that is informed by the crucifixion. And he actually reframes the nature of this reality in a tremendous statement in Luke 16, 15, where he says, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. I mean, that is, detestable is a very, very strong word about how God feels about things that we tend to value. So uh, let's dive into it because we're talking here about really what's the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which Jesus says a little bit of yeast leavens the whole lump. And, and Jesus, again, he's trying to drive out of them this yeast, this this bad teaching that maybe was never articulated, but it's in the air and it's in their bones, and Jesus wants to drive it out of them and out of us. So let's, there's actually four qualities, and I've got a nice little chart there uh, that you'll see uh, in the book. And it goes, the first one goes like this. Worldly discipleship is be popular. Jesus' discipleship is reject popularity. Now, it has taken me decades to grasp the enormous power of the temptation to be popular. In fact, it's one of the three temptations the devil uses against Jesus uh, in the wilderness. And what's so interesting is because uh, we know the world goes after popularity, but what's so easy to do is, we'll see in just a moment, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they want to be popular too. Uh, and it's just now we have a religious covering for that inner drive to be popular. Uh, it's kind of like another layer of the false self. And so in Matthew 4, for example, Satan quotes scripture and invites Jesus to jump down from the highest point of the temple so that people will believe in him. At this point, Jesus is not popular, and he's basically invisible to the crowds. Uh, in fact, but he refuses to jump down off the temple to be popular. And then, in fact, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees were so unimpressed with Jesus, they said they, want, they wanted a sign. But Jesus refused to give them a miracle on demand in order to be popular. In fact, so many of his miracles he seemed to be doing like inconspicuously. I mean, just think of a loaves and the fishes miracle. It was done in such a way that people almost wouldn't even know it. I mean, it was just the way these, these loaves seemed to invisibly multiply either in his hands or the hands of the disciples, or he's healing someone who's blind as he pulls him outside the village. Uh, but, but the desire to be popular was deeply ingrained in the secular culture of Jesus' day and the religious culture of the first century. And so Jesus calls out the Pharisees on this, uh, where he says to them, he says in Matthew 23, everything they do is for people to see. 
Wow. You say, that's a day. And Jesus says, you, however, as my disciples, are to utterly reject any kind of showy spirituality to impress other people. Uh, and the whole Sermon on the Mount's got a huge section about the way we pray, the way we give, the way we fast, that we are not to do it like the religious people today that are looking for popularity, but to do it secretly to our Father who is in heaven. Let me just try to say this as clearly as possible. Uh, Jesus denounced any activity that had any traces of seeking the approval or the admiration of other people. Jesus denounced any activity that had traces that were seeking approval of other people or admiration of other people, where to give up every quest to be noticed by someone else, whether it's building a bigger ministry for God, getting more possessions, uh, bigger buildings, moving up a career ladder. Uh, and Jesus knew the weakness of our human heart. He, he knew that this desire to impress other people would be a constant temptation to every follower uh, of his. And so he says to the religious leaders of his day, how can you believe when you accept glory from one another, but you do not seek the glory that comes from the Lord God himself? John 5, 44. And he knew that this desire to be popular poisons discipleship. It poisons faith because you end up making decisions that you wouldn't make otherwise. And um, you know what it's like. I, you know, I'm, I'm in the pulpit and I'm saying, how can I preach this message in such a way or use this illustration? How, you know, how, how am I coming off? How does it seem to people? Or, or if I'm talking with someone about how they hurt me, if I talk with that person concerned about how they hurt me, will they see me differently? So maybe I don't talk to them. Or if I share my hopes and dreams, will they think I'm selfish? Or will my supervisor think of me differently if I share my struggles? Or how many likes am I getting on this social media posts? Or how many followers might I pick up? And this thing of being popular, which I'm calling the world's discipleship, is so deep, so unconscious, uh, that again, it, it surfaces in, in very subtle ways. Like I end up saying yes when I'd rather say no, or, or I, don't, I don't speak up, or I remain silent because uh, I don't want to rock the boat. And and uh, I mean, here, I'll I just, personal testimony, I mean, so many times God was seeking to mature me through tests and trials. And I was more concerned about how other pastors or leaders were going to view this messy path I was on and uh, end up lying a lot and not being honest with people and difficult conversations and even everything from annual reviews, you name it. So Jesus says, reject popularity. But the invitation is we are to be content to be popular with him alone. And actually, the controlling uh, text comes out of the uh, parable of the talents in Matthew 25, where Jesus says, you know, we're to look for that very that final moment where we've where Jesus says to us, "Well done, good and faithful servant." That we're actually popular with Him. So, so that desire to be popular actually is not a bad thing. It's it's actually a fundamental human desire given to us by God, but because of sin, it's been twisted, and we end up looking for it from people. Uh, and Jesus basically says, "No, I want to by the Holy Spirit. I want to sort that out. I want to straighten it out." So that you shift your desire from focusing on people thinking you're fantastic, to actually focusing on the Father thinking you're fantastic so that he might say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. So that's just number one. But the second issue of worldly discipleship is not just that I reject, not, not just that I reject popularity, um, but the second is that the, you know, the world's discipleship says, be great. Jesus says, reject greatnessism. Just reject that whole notion of being great completely. Now, again, think of, when we think about greatness, think about every culture, every country, every field of human endeavor, you know, honors those who 
attain some level of greatness. Think of Nobel Prizes. Uh, think of Oscars or Tonys. Think of you know, athletics, Olympics, World Cups, Super Bowl champions. Uh, you know, we, we erect monuments to great people. We create days of remembrance. We, we canonize great saints. But and so and actually, if you think of our different cultures, our families of origin, they also have a definition of greatness. So, uh, you know, in, in some families, it might be getting straight A's in school. It might be making a lot of money. It might be becoming a professional, like a lawyer or a medical doctor. It might be graduating from this prestigious school, or becoming a pastor of a certain type of church or or a vocational Christian marketplace leader or getting married and having children, many children. Uh, but again, it, it plays out differently in different cultures and families of origin. But it actually plays out in leadership as well, because our desire for greatness might sound like this. I'm going to build a great company um, that's going to make a massive impact in our community and generate a lot of profits. And we're going to give that away to uh, in a way that's going to make a massive impact and people are going to notice. Or I'm going to build a great church with 100 people or 200 or 500 people. I'm going to build a great ministry that really reaches young people post-COVID-19. Or I'm going to lead a great small group um, that grows. I'm going to be a great board member who offers wisdom to the ministry. I'm going to be a great prayer team ministry that through whom God's going to heal people. Uh, again, the list goes on. I, I'm a visionary. I have three ideas uh, before I have my morning tea. And I love thinking about opportunities and new things for God and uh, the danger is, you know, for, what do I do with that? Am I seeking to be great for who? Uh, what's behind that vision and dream? Uh, but Jesus does call us to greatness. Here's the irony of it. But again, it's tw- our greatness is twisted by sin and the world, and Jesus wants to straighten it out and says, no, no, I, I call you to be great for me. Um, and you know, think of Jesus' ministry for a second. You know, his beginnings were not great. He was born in a manger in a small village. He had to flee as a fugitive and refugee to Egypt. He came from Nazareth, which was nowheresville. He wasn't didn't even go to the right rabbinical school. He didn't go to any rabbinical school. His disciples weren't great. I mean, they were Galileans, blue-collar, uneducated fishermen, no great intellects or impressive influence on their resumes. Uh, they weren't setting the world on fire in the beginning at all. Uh, the ministry wasn't great. I mean— Think about it. Jesus seemed to be running more of a, a ambulance ministry, driving around, picking up crushed victims uh, of the system. He doesn't seem to be overthrowing the evil political, military, and economic structures of Rome. His miracles are happening in the backwoods of Galilee and not strategically in Rome or Jerusalem like they should. Uh, and the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herod and the empire, the temple, it's all still in place. Just doesn't look very great. And his impact wasn't great. I mean, his think of the small towns where he concentrated his ministry, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Nazareth. They rejected him. Uh, he didn't even seem to be able to keep all 12 on board. Judas quit. Uh, John the Baptist ends up doubting him in prison. You know, he says, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? I mean, it's just, it doesn't look like his impact is very great either. But But Jesus knew that just like in the wilderness, he had to renounce greatness when it was given by Satan. We too must renounce categorically any notion of being great by the world standards because it's a deadly threat. It'll destroy us. And so he calls us, he invites us to give up the whole idea of greatness completely. 
even in spiritual matters. In other words, we're to be, just like we're to be popular with God alone, we're to be great with God alone. At the end of our lives, we hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. And so he calls us to move away from this being great to a lowly place of hanging with the lowly, with the humility of being open and curious, uh, being with people who are marginalized perhaps by the culture. They're unattractive. They're not strategic. They're Maybe they're elderly or mentally or physically handicapped. Uh, they're the battered, the poor, whatever. We, Jesus was impressed by the people whom the world considered unimpressive. I just love that. And, and so in following the crucified Jesus, we, we shift our focus from being great to the largely hidden life of doing small deeds for Jesus. And that's why for me, it, it's resulted in, in two things. One is I, I, I have to ask myself this question of, you know, when are my plans and are my ambitions legitimately for the glory of God? And when do they cross the line into my own desire for greatness, and that includes doing this podcast. And then what opportunities has God placed before me to be lowly with the lowly, to be little with the little? That comes out of Matthew 18, that whole little emphasis, and again, looking at the ministry of Jesus, and uh, how am I responding to that? Uh, because I end up crossing limits and uh, getting into all kinds of trouble. So again, world's discipleship, be popular, be great. Jesus' discipleship is reject popularity, reject greatnessism. Now, the third great divide here of the world's discipleship versus Jesus' discipleship is around this issue of success. The world's discipleship says, be successful. Jesus says, reject successism. Reject successism. I mean, who doesn't want to be a success, right? We look up to successful people. Uh, it's rightly been said that successism or being a success may be the world's most universal religion. But we've got to see it for what it is. It's a counterfeit faith, and it has the power to cut us off from Jesus. And again, I, I think I've mentioned in a previous podcast, part one, uh, that the culture believes that success is bigger is better, right? Up and to the right, bigger influence, bigger impact. And we, we the church, believe pretty much the same thing. We measure success by bigger, uh, bigger numbers, bigger goals. We're getting greater, and we consider it a failure if our numbers are going down. And so that's why Jesus defines success very differently. Success is becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way and according to his timetable. As I said two, two weeks ago, you want to memorize that statement. That's why when Peter hears about Jesus going to the cross and being crucified, he starts rebuking Jesus, says, never, Lord, because that is not a successful journey by the world standards. And Paul's got, I mean, Peter's got a vision for the ministry, but it is not that. It's not the crucifixion. And uh, he goes down swinging, and uh, Jesus is leading him step by step to reject worldly success. Because, and that's why Peter, you know, he pulls out a sword later, right, and cuts off the, the servant of the high priest's ear because he's so angry about losing this world's great, world's popularity, greatness, and definition of success. It's so deeply in him, just that is is deeply in me and deeply in you. And Peter just can't reconcile in his brain and his spirit this idea of success and crucifixion. Like, they just don't fit. He just doesn't get, like, how can mustard seeds and failures and rejections and a few loaves and fishes 
be a success. But three years with Jesus, he's still struggling. And we're not like we're not that different than Peter. We end up making misguided decisions uh, because we've got this success idea in our heads that's just not him. And so when Satan comes to Jesus in, in the wilderness, the final temptation, he offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, success. He just bows to him for a moment. Every person would know in the world that he's Savior, his Lord. He can, he, can, he can accomplish great things without being crucified. But Jesus, that would eliminate what Jesus knows is the Father's will for him, which is failure, defeat, and crucifixion. Uh, and if had Jesus succumbed to that temptation, he would have succeeded in getting the ministry done, but he would have utterly failed, or at least the ministry to a certain level done, but he would have utterly failed uh, God's definition of success. He would not have done God's work, God's way, according to God's timetable. That's why I love this is great quote by Frederick Dale Bruner. He wrote a fabulous commentary on Matthew. He wrote this about Jesus and the wilderness temptation. He goes, we will do sometimes absolutely anything to keep our work from failing. But the moment we do absolutely anything to keep our work for God from failing, we have made our work God. And perhaps without realizing it, we have worshiped Satan. That's why we've got to expose and reject successism that permeates the church and our people and thus compromise our own integrity. We've got to invite people to God's definition of success, uh, which is so radically different than the world. Success is becoming the person God's called you to become and doing what God's called you to do in his way and according to his timetable. Now, here's the fourth element of the world's discipleship versus Jesus' discipleship. And that is, the world says, avoid suffering and failure. God says, embrace suffering and failure. <clears throat> and again, Peter, in Matthew 16, he can't, he can't say it. When Jesus is talking about suffering and rejection and death, he's like, never, Lord. Yet Paul says, is himself in 1 Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, in fact, 2 Corinthians 10 to 13 is all about Paul saying to, 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 these, to these super apostles that are competing with him and basically saying Paul is weak and foolish. And Paul says, I boast about my weaknesses and my failures and my defeats and my sufferings that Christ's power might rest on me. I mean, 2 Corinthians 10 to 13 is a tremendous expose on God's call for us to embrace suffering and failure as we follow Jesus. Uh, and that's why Paul says in Galatians 6, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like things like I'm willing to look foolish, even like I'm failing when I'm waiting on God, rather than rush things uh, and manipulate externals so I look like a success, or I'm willing to be a true peacemaker and enter into conflicts uh, that are going to, in a sense, bring God's kingdom rather than sweep them under the rug, even though it's going to be a lot messier. Or I'm willing to embrace limits, uh, my limits on plans and activities, uh, so as not to skimp on relationships and quality and self-care. I'm not going to fake it until I make it. I'm not going to. I'm, I'm going to take the time needed to grieve losses and trust God for treasures in them, rather than rush through them and deny them and move on. I'm going to be honest about the ministry. I'm not going to exaggerate, uh, even if it hurts people giving financially. In other words. Jesus over and over again is telling the 12, hey, it's a mustard seed. It's a, the kingdom is slow. It's small. But it demonstrates that it's God's power, not us. And so 
Don't avoid and run from suffering and failure. God may very much be in it. Again, just think of Peter. His failures, God used it to break him. Could you imagine how unteachable he would have been if he hadn't had that failure in his life? Think of Paul without a thorn in the flesh. Oh my goodness, headstrong and gifted as he was. And think of Moses, even 40 years in the wilderness of failure and suffering, but it was necessary to make him the meekest man on the earth. It's all, suffering and failure has always been God's way to mold his servants. Listen, remember, Jesus' greatest miracle was the resurrection. Was not was the resurrection, yes, but the second greatest miracle was him hanging on the cross and not jumping off it, waiting on the Father, looking like a failure and suffering for the sins of the world. And so there are times when we are too hanging on a cross, not impatiently launching things or making hasty decisions or frantically overworking out of fear the ministry is going to collapse. We actually wait on the Father. We, we follow Jesus' way of discipleship. And we embrace those seasons of suffering and when things look like a failure, because they may look like a failure, but they're actually not. They're actually sometimes the greatest seeds of our success long term. So we want to follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus. So, so how do you do this? It's so impossible. Oh my goodness, Pete, you're kidding me. You know, uh, reject popularity, reject greatness, re, uh, reject um, uh, successism. And reject avoiding, you know, suffering and evil, uh, suffering and failures. How do I live such a thing? Well, that's going to require a deep inner life. And so, I'll, I, I end the chapter, and I'm not going to go into it right now by inviting you to take the first steps to follow the crucified Jesus. And I mentioned three practices that have informed my life and are big themes in Scripture uh, to take some first steps to go such a countercultural, revolutionary way, and that is relax in Jesus, detach for Jesus, and then listen to Jesus. So in other words, we spend the time on our inner life, investing in, my, in our inner life with Jesus so that we actually can live it out in our outer life. We give the equal amount of time in our inner life as we do our outer life. So again, let me invite you to go to <clears throat> emotionallyhealthy.org slash discipleship. Pick up some of those free resources around the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book. I hope you'll read and prayerfully uh, read this chapter. It's so critical. Not just be before you do, but follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus. And let me invite you again, how do you apply this to the big challenges we're facing today? And you'll want to check out our live stream event on April 15th uh, as I leverage these powerful insights uh, around the four great challenges facing us in uh, our decade today. Just go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash live stream. That's emotionallyhealthy.org slash live stream. Everybody, God bless you. It's been wonderful to be with you, and I pray you have a wonderful day.